0: Because these things, too, were written for our instruction, so we'd be encouraged, and also so that we would be warned. So let's pray before we continue. Our great God, we do need you. We need your truth. I pray that you would speak to your people now, through your scriptures, even through me. I'm going to be able to explain these things well, and I pray, God, that they would find their necessary application in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. That's page 13, if you're using the Pew Bible at Calvary. We're starting in Genesis 15. And let me remind you of the context here. Abram is in Canaan. He's parted ways with Lot. Actually, he just rescued Lot from some marauding kings at this point. That's what takes place in chapter 14. But we're picking up at Genesis 15, verse 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Let's see what's happening to Abram here. Starting verse one, after these things, the word of Yahweh or the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh, Lord, Yahweh, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O oh Lord Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenazite, the cadmonite and the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite." All right, this is a nice long section here. Can't comment on every detail, but let's observe some particularly important ones. Notice how God speaks to Abram in a vision in this passage and identifies himself as Abram's shield. He also says, or he also affirms Abram's coming great reward. There's some difference in the translations here. New American Standard says your reward will be very great. New new International Version, the NIV, and the New King James Version, they say, I am your very great reward, God himself saying, I am your reward. The Hebrew really could be translated either way, and there is some overlap in meaning. But how does Abram respond to this repetition of God's promise of blessing? Well, Abram reminds God that Abram has no child. It says, Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. He has an adopted heir, probably a servant in Abram's household. But in response, God says, Eliezer will not be your heir, but your heir will be one who comes from your own body. And then God gives a stunning picture of Abram's future descendants. God tells Abram, hey, go outside, look up and number the stars if you can. Believe it or not, man at one time thought that he could number the stars. Early astronomers attempted to do this. But technology advances in technology has opened our eyes to the our absolute inability to count the stars. There are about 10,000 stars that are visible to the naked eye. But according to modern estimates based on our telescopes and other resources, we now estimate that there are 100 billion stars just in our galaxy. And how many galaxies are there? Well, according to Hubble, we estimate now about 100 billion galaxies, but that number is expected to increase as our telescopes get better and we see more in the universe. So think about that: we have 100 billion galaxies and 100 billion stars per galaxy. That's a lot of stars. But I think Abraham would get that point even without telescopes. Humans just can't calculate even the stars that are our naked eye. We can't. Just look at them, point them, remember them. This is the idea. He says, Abraham, so will your descendants be. They will be uncountable. Now, could you imagine if God said something like that to you? So will your descendants be you more than the number of stars? Now, at that time, such a statement would have been considered an even greater honor because there was a particular uh, value and honor Assigned to having descendants, having many children. And there's still some of that today. We would still feel very honored to have a large family or to have many descendants. And God says, This is going to be true about you. Now, notice verse 6. In response to this direction to count the stars, in response to God's explanation, text says, Abram believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, what does reckoned mean? That means counted, or assigned, or imputed. And who reckoned what to whom? Well, God reckoned Abram's belief in Yahweh to Abram as righteousness. What is it that Abram believes? It says he believed in Yahweh. He believed God, and he believed God's promises, including this specific promise about uncountable descendants. Now, what's interesting, from verse 2 to verse 6, has anything changed in Abram's physical situation that would cause him to see this promise as more believable? No, nothing's changed except that God has just spoken to him. And Abram believes God. God then reminds Abram also of God's promise regarding the land of Canaan. God says, I'm giving this land to you. And then this time, notice Abram also responds to God and says, or, and he asks God for a sign, for a proof that this promise will come to pass. And in reply, God gives kind of interesting set of directions. He commands Abram to bring five, five specific animals, cut some of them in half, and arrange them. And Abram does this. He lays, uh, he cuts these animals and lays the pieces apart from each other. Now, I'm sure this would have been a little bit a little bit of a bloody scene. I mean, you don't just cut animals in half and everything's neat and tidy. This is it's a little bit little bit bloody here. So Abram sets the animal pieces apart, and then he waits, and darkness soon falls. And notice what happens when night falls. First, Abram has a nightmare. And in this nightmare, God reveals to him the timing of Abraham's descendants inheriting the land. God promises that Abram's descendants will be oppressed slaves and in a foreign land for about 400 years before that land is plundered and judged. And Abram's descendants return to possess the land. Now, notice why such a long wait, according to the text. God says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And the Amorites were part of the current inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And likely they're used to represent all of the inhabitants of Canaan. God says there needs to be this time to go by because the iniquity is not yet complete. It's not yet been filled up. It hasn't yet reached the limit. Abram, however, is told that he himself will die in peace at a good old age. So there's this nightmare that Abram experiences and the revelation through it. But second, and perhaps more strangely a smoking oven and a flaming torch appear and they pass through the pieces of the cut animals and notice who does not pass through these cut animals abram himself now, he's just stuck in sleep he didn't walk through and then the final section of this chapter god tells abram about the borders of the land that his descendants will be given it says from the river of egypt to the euphrates and this land is currently occupied by a number of different people groups and they're listed at the end now a little bit of geography here many of you may be familiar with the euphrates river that's one of the two major rivers in mesopotamia the tigris and euphrates would have been very commonly known to the people of israel but what is the river of egypt i might think this refers to the nile hey the Nile's that big important river in egypt it is the principal river of egypt but that's not the word here used in hebrew there's a specific word in Hebrew for the Nile, and it's not this word. This is a different word, and it likely refers to a different river, or at least a different part of the river. This term, the River of Egypt or the Brook of Egypt, it may refer to a non—what what is now a non-existent branch of the Nile, which once flowed to the city of Pelusium on the border of the Sinai Peninsula. So think a little bit about Egypt and Israel. You know there's that little chunk of land the sinai peninsula that sticks down between them so it's possible that this river of egypt this brook of egypt flowed to the western side of the sinai peninsula so basically the western edge of the sinai peninsula that would be the border that would be the river of egypt the other possibility is that the river was on the eastern side of the sinai peninsula a river called the wadi el arish now wadi if you're not familiar a wadi is a riverbed that is normally dry, but it flows with water in an area's rainy season. So think of it like a seasonal river. The wadi al-Arish, it flows on the northeastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, and it empties into the Mediterranean near the modern-day city of Arish. This If this is the border, if this is the river of Egypt in the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, then it's not very far from Israel's modern-day border. So if you think about where Egypt and Israel are today, a little bit beyond that border would be where the river of Egypt or the brook of Egypt was in ancient times. Now, why am I taking time to explain this? Because this description actually keeps on coming up as we go through the Old Testament. Israel historically has never occupied the area from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Though Solomon in his day did exercise influence over this area, according to Second Chronicles 9, 26. But we will see, or you will see, as you say through the Old Testament, and I think it will come up more in class, this description of the brook or the border or the river of Egypt to the Euphrates to refer to the land that God allotted by promise to Abram and his seed. All right, but that does it for observations. Let's move now to interpretation and interpretation questions. Let's start with a, a pretty big one here. What is the significance of Genesis 15:6? Abraham believed in Yahweh, and he accounted it to him, or he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is very, very key. This verse reveals justification by faith, even in the Old Testament. Justification by faith is a very important concept for us. It's explained very much in the New Testament. But here, because we see this concept displayed, we see that it is consistent with the Old Testament. So far in Genesis, we've been seeing people acting in faith, and we've been seeing people demonstrating lives of righteousness before God. But we haven't seen the connection between those things explained to us specifically, or how, how those things interact with someone's righteous standing before God. Here, Moses, by the Spirit of God, very specifically reports how and why Abram was counted righteous by God. Was Abram counted righteous by his works? No, not according to this verse. Was Abram counted righteous by a ritual like circumcision? No, that cannot be because circumcision hasn't even been given to Abram at this point. That comes in Genesis 17. So then by what was Abram counted righteous? Righteous. Simple faith, belief in God, belief in God's promises. As I say, this is exactly what the New Testament says about how a person is made righteous before God, how a person is made acceptable, how a person is made justified before God. And you know that this is explained very well in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by faith and not by works. And indeed, when trying to demonstrate this concept to New Testament believers, what is it that the New Testament writers often do? They refer back to Abraham say, look, it's always been salvation by faith. It's always been righteousness by faith. Because look at Abraham. In fact, let's look at one of the ways the New Testament makes this appeal. Keep your finger in Genesis 15, but turn to the New Testament, to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. This is one of the times where Abraham is highlighted as an example of what salvation is. We'll read verses 1 to 5 and then verses 9 to 12. So Romans 4, Paul speaking, here's what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, not for God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now skip down to verses 9 and 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You see, it's just as we said. Salvation is consistent. It's always been by faith. In fact, Paul explains that promise about Abraham having a multitude of descendants. It was not only a physical promise, but also a spiritual promise. Because Abraham is the father of faith. he is the father of those who believe in God by faith. Indeed, the reason he has this title is because he's the first one in the Bible to be specifically identified as counted righteous by faith. Therefore, he has become the father of all of those who by faith in God are also counted righteous. And that includes you. If you know Jesus Christ, you prove yourself to be a spiritual descendant of Abraham of course, the implications of this truth are massive. And I know many of you appreciate this already because Genesis 15:6 it destroys any effort to seek acceptance by God through works, through various good deeds, through various religious acts. You cannot be made acceptable to God through those things or a combination of those things with faith. Yeah, I need faith to be justified, but I have to do these other things to be justified or made righteous. No. This verse shows, no, it is belief in God. It is simple faith in God to which God attributes, counts, reckons righteousness. A person today is made right by God by faith alone, just as Abram was. And we'll say more about that concept as we move through today's lesson. Let's move to another question of interpretation. Did Abram sin and asking God for a sign? I ask this question because we have other people in the scriptures who do this, and sometimes the outcome is not always a commendation. Was Abram expressing doubt when he asked for a sign? This is a difficult question to answer. You may remember New Testament Christmas narrative. Zacharias, he also asked God for a sign, and he's in a very similar situation. He's an old man, doesn't have a kid. Gabriel says, you're going to have a son. And he says, how will I know this for certain? Because I am an old man. But when he says this, the angel rebukes him. He says, look, I'm Gabriel. I, I came to you to give you this good news and you don't believe it. You're going to be mute until it happens. And Jesus, too. He rebukes the unbelieving Jews of his day because they continually asked for signs. They wouldn't believe. On the other hand, Abraham asked for a sign and he's not rebuked here and others in the scriptures experience a similar accommodation. In fact, in Isaiah 7, another somewhat Christmas-related passage, God, through Isaiah, commands the wicked king of Judah, King Ahaz, to ask for a sign. God wants to give you a sign. What kind of sign do you want? He says. Of course, Ahaz demurs, and he says, oh, I won't ask God for a sign. I don't want to test him. But in doing so, he actually tests God. Certainly, God has never is never obligated to give signs or proofs that what he says will come to pass. His word is sufficient. But he often grants a sign. He gives people what they ask for. And why does he do this? Out of compassion. Out of kindness. Out of a desire to show himself more glorious and to encourage the faith of those who belong to him. And we see God doing just the same thing here for Abraham. He says, You want a sign? I'll give you one. But the sign is somewhat interesting. God has Abram prepare for a certain ritual. But what is the point of separating these animals in this bloody manner and this weird thing about the oven and the torch passing through them? What's this all about? Ah. This is the ratification of a covenant. You see, Abram was not confused as to what God was setting up at this time. This is something that he would have been familiar with in his culture. This is a treaty ratification ceremony. Just as two people today might shake hands to indicate their commitment to a common promise, or just as a bride and groom exchange vows and rings today in front of witnesses to show their commitment in marriage, There's a custom at the time of Abram when it came to agreements. Two participants would cut animals apart and walk between them. Now, why? Why cut animals apart in this gruesome way? Well, it was to symbolize a very serious truth. The covenant participants, by walking through these cut animals, would say, if I don't uphold my part of this agreement, let me be cut in pieces like these animals. I deserve it if I break the promise. You see these bloody cut animals? Let me be like them if I don't keep this promise, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant. This is what God is setting up for Abram. According to verse 17, Genesis 15, 17, the God of the universe enters into a treaty, a covenant with Abram, literally cuts a covenant with Abram. But, Notice who passes through the animals. God, represented by the oven and torch, he passes through the animals, but Abram doesn't. Abram's incapacitated on the side. He can't pass through the animals. So, what is God saying? Well, God says, if I don't uphold the terms of the covenant, let me be accursed. But Abram, doesn't have conditions for this covenant. This is unnormal for how a covenant ceremony would be conducted at the time. Only one of the participants passes through, which means God is making a unilateral covenant with Abram. Unilateral, meaning one-sided. God, by walking through the animals, he affirms that his promises to Abram will come to pass without regard to Abram's performance, without conditions. God is taking the entire responsibility for bringing his promises to pass himself. He says, this covenant, I will make sure it happens. It's all on me, and if I don't do it, let me be accursed. This would be a great encouragement to Abraham, would it not? This is another example of both the abundant compassion of God and also the abundant power of god and not just to abraham but also to inheritors of the abrahamic covenant you see all of those and we've already discussed this to some extent all of those who are inheritors of the blessings of abraham through the abrahamic covenant including those believing jews and believing gentiles who are in christ it is the same for them as it was for abraham god does it all God brings the blessings of the covenant to them all on his own. God doesn't say to Abraham or to us who have become inheritors of the Abrahamic covenant, do this and I will bless you, but don't do this and sorry you lose it all. You're cursed. No, God says, I'm bringing it all to pass by myself. This is very different than the Mosaic covenant, that covenant given to Israel. Where God says, hey, you got you got terms you've got to uphold. We don't see that here. For the, for the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, God does it all, and God gets the glory of it all. And those who are the beneficiaries of this covenant, they are to respond to it with, just as Abraham was, with continued trust, with praise and thanksgiving, and obedience to God. Now, it's not a condition, but it is an expected result. So then, does this one-sided nature of the Abrahamic covenant, does it mean that its inheritors are free to sin and disobey God? Well, no, they are not. In fact, we're going to see something very interesting later on. It doesn't come up in this passage, but when we get to Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's being called to sacrifice Isaac. We're going to see an explanation there of the Abrahamic covenant that sounds like it is conditional. I don't want to give it all away now, but just so that you're not unsettled, I'll I'll preview how these truths work together. And that is, yes, you are expected to be obedient as an inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. But where does that obedience come from? It comes from God. Your obedience is ordained. It's brought about by God. And thus, He is able to be just and still bless you. It's like what Philippians 2, Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 says. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. You might be familiar with these verses. Paul says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, verse 13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So don't think you're contributing anything to your salvation, to your reception of these blessings. God does it all. Nevertheless, he works in you in such a way that you will believe and you will obey. Not perfectly, of course, but you will follow God and you will continue to become more like him. This was true for Abraham and true for the inheritors of Abraham's promise. This, I think, points us to the purpose of this passage in general. Why did Moses write this passage? The people of Israel that he's writing to, they're passing through the wilderness, receiving the law of God, preparing to enter the promised land. Why report this whole thing about this covenant ceremony with Abraham? Well, in one way is an affirmation of their right to receive the promised land. But more importantly, it is to teach a lesson about faith people of Israel were to learn from the faith of Abraham, believe God's promises, and receive and obtain God's acceptance and blessing. And we are to learn the same lesson. Should we not walk before God in faith, knowing that his goodwill on our behalf is going to be accomplished, it will never be thwarted, God is going to make sure he's taking the responsibility himself so let us not be like those who must see with physical eyes before they can obey let's instead be like what hebrews 11 and 12 describe let us be those who see with the eyes of faith what is unseen and therefore walk worthy before god and let us be aware of any sort of thinking that begins to put us into a works wages mindset that somehow we have to work enough, suffer enough, wait long enough, do enough good before we can embrace God's mercy before or after salvation. Do holiness and good works result from faith? Yes, they do, always. But they do not, and they cannot come before faith. There's no waiting period before one can embrace Christ The banquet of repentance is always open to the broken and contrite. You don't clean yourself up first. You come to God to be cleaned up. He cleans you up. He does it all himself. Therefore, now is the day of salvation. Always. And even after salvation, for those of you who are in Christ, when you sin, don't put yourself in spiritual timeout. Continue to berate yourself. Not think that you can... Even approach God until you read the Bible a whole lot and pray a whole lot and witness a whole lot so that you can make up for your sin that you did. No, that's not the way it works. Yes, it's natural for us to grieve over sin. That's good and that's worshipful. But such grief should not prevent us from being like the prodigal son who immediately turns around and returns to his father's house and he embraces his father's mercy and generosity. We are to do the same so that we might know God's blessing. Beware of that works-wages mindset. And think again of what God shows to Abraham. He simply believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, this passage, Genesis 15, it's so triumphant. I mean, God's grace is put on display, power saving faith. I should mention just briefly, the content of his faith is a little bit different than the content of our faith. We have much more revealed. We know we, we know Jesus Christ specifically, God's promised substitute. Abraham only saw this dimly, but he knew that God had to provide a substitute for him in some measure. So in one sense, his faith was the same, even though or the content of his faith was the same, even though ours has, the content of ours has been expanded. We know more. Nevertheless, it's the same faith and the same righteousness that comes through faith. But as I say, very triumphant, glorious what a wonderful encouragement of this passage. And then we get to Genesis 16. <laughs> Genesis 16 is going to teach us a little bit more about how faith interacts with the nitty-gritty of life. Because despite these wonderful affirmations of God to Abram in Genesis 15, Abram and "I still don't have a son. And God's promises haven't yet come to pass. So what are they going to do? Let's now look at Genesis 16. So turn back over there. Genesis 16. We're going to read this whole chapter, too. It's about 16 verses. So let me get there in my Bible. Genesis 16, 1 to 16. Okay. Follow along with me as I read. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold... Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. angel of Yahweh said to her further, behold, you are with child, And you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh, who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. What an interesting juxtaposition of passages, right? Let's start with observations here. Notice verse three says that at this point, Abram's been in Canaan 10 years, and he still has no son. And how old is Abram at this point? Well, he was 75 when he left Haran, and he's about 85 years old now. Or so that means he's, he must be about 85 years old now. And how old is Sarai? Well, we learn a little bit later on, Genesis 17, 17, that Sarai is about 10 years younger than Abram. So he's 85, and she is 75. Now, apparently, Sarai was still, or she was known as a beautiful woman, even as she, even as she aged. But do you know any women who have children at age 75? Note Sarai's proposition to Abram. She says, marry and have relations with Hagar, the Egyptian, as a concubine. And Hagar's child will count as Sarai's child. And note her reasoning for this proposal in verse 2. She says, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Perhaps I will obtain children through Hagar. Now, has Yahweh prevented Sarai from having children? Well, up to this point, yes, she hasn't had any. So Sarai thinks because of this, maybe God means for Abram to obtain children from Sarai in a roundabout way, using Hagar. By the way, this idea sounds totally crazy to you. In one sense it is, but it was apparently a well-known custom of the day. In those times, a barren wife, would often provide another wife or a concubine for her husband to obtain children for her husband, even through the second wife. We're going to see this again in the Old Testament. And we see this outside the Bible. Archaeologists have uncovered marriage contracts from ancient Mesopotamia in which this same custom is described. Uh, even before marriage, this one tablet that I can remember, <laughs> She says, if I don't bear you children by a certain day or a certain year, I'll provide you with another wife. I mean, that sounds totally weird to us today. And in a sense, it is. But it was a custom of the time. Now, not everybody did that, of course, but it was known. So what Sarai suggests to Abram was a culturally accepted idea. And what does Abram do? He listens to the voice of his wife. Verse three, he accedes to her plan. And does Sarai's proposal work in bringing about a conception? It does, but what's the problem? Well, once Hagar realizes she's pregnant, she no longer respects her mistress. And Sarai gets pretty upset about this. Whom does she blame? Abram. She said, let the wrong done to me be upon you. It's your fault. What does Abram do in response? says, whatever you want to do with Hagar is fine with me. And we see what Sarai wants to do with Hagar. She treats her harshly. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it was enough to make Hagar run away. So it must have been pretty nasty. Uh, This is not exactly a shining example of godly people following Yahweh. But you know what? This is reality. The Bible this is a true book. It doesn't doctor up its heroes to make them look better. No, even men of God, men and women of God in the Bible, they are shown to be imperfect, and even at times to commit some pretty shameful acts. And we see, we see them doing that here. Verse or Hagar runs away. Verse seven says though that she's found by the angel of Yahweh by a spring on the way to Shur. Now, this would have been from where Abram was going to Egypt. So it's likely that Hagar, as an Egyptian, was trying to return to the land of her origin. But the angel of the Lord appears to her and speaks with her. He says to Hagar, return, submit to your mistress, verse 9. I will greatly multiply your descendants, verse 10. And you will have a son and call his name Ishmael, verse 11. Now, notice why the name Ishmael. Your Bible might have a couple of footnotes that explain. The text itself says, "Because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction," but more literally, the Hebrew says, "Because Yahweh has heard your affliction." I mean, it's the same idea, but why? Why is that important? Because that's that concept is captured in the name Ishmael. What does Ishmael mean? God hears. God hears. And now, would, now notice verses thirteen and fourteen. Whom is it that Hagar says spoke with her? Yahweh himself. And she gives Yahweh a name. She says, You are a God who sees. And she marvels that she's still alive after speaking with God. And she calls the well where she met the angel Be'er Lahai well of the living one who sees me. Does what the angel announced come to pass? It does. Verses 15 and 16, she returns, she submits to Sarai, and she bears a son to Abram when Abram is 86 years old. Abram calls the boy Ishmael. Now notice, who is it that God rebukes in this passage? He doesn't rebuke anybody. doesn't rebuke Abram, doesn't rebuke Sarai, and really doesn't rebuke Hagar, though he does tell Hagar to return after giving her a promise. Does that mean that God approved of what happened? We'll we'll talk about that as we move to the interpretation step. But first, let's ask, who is the angel of Yahweh? It has to be God himself. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. This is one of those amazing uh, details of the Old Testament. But we've already seen this. The details of the text, like the angel saying, I will multiply your descendants, and the way that Hagar reacts to the angel shows that this is God himself. This appearance then is another theophany, or likely a Christophany. Remember, theophany, that's an appearance of God uh, to man, visibly, tangibly, but a Christophany is the idea that it is the son of God who appears to Hagar. It is an appearance of the Son of God before his incarnation. And again, I've argued before, why do we think it's Christophany? Because he's the go-between between between God and man. He's the explainer of the Father. And so it makes sense. He's the one who makes himself visible. So this is probably the Son of God speaking to Hagar, as it is many times at the Old Testament. When you hear angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, most of the time it's referring to God himself. And what's amazing is the angel of Yahweh speaks to Yahweh at certain points. So you can even see the doctrine of the Trinity basically being revealed mysteriously and not in full, but being revealed in the Old Testament. All right, but let's come back to that question I raised at the end of our observation step. Did Abram and Sarai do wrong in following the polygamous custom of their day to obtain a child? They're not rebuked in this passage, but did they do wrong? They did. They did. And how do we know that? not because of the narrator's comment, because there is none, but because of God's design from creation. What does Genesis 2.24 say? After the creation of Eve and her being brought in marriage to Adam, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That verse sets the paradigm for all marriage. God's promise to Genesis 15 was consistent with God's design for marriage. When he said, Abram, one from your own body will be your heir, it was implied that Sarai would be the mother, because that's how God designed marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh for life. And if God closed Sarah's womb, Sarai's womb, it would not be impossible for him to open it. So even though it's not stated explicitly in the text, they did violate God's design for marriage and they did wrong in doing this even though they were seeking to obtain the promise you know it's actually kind of interesting that there's some aspects of this passage uh, aspects of this passage that are reminiscent of Genesis 3 did you notice that we have the wife suggesting a basically a sinful course of action to her husband the man listens to the voice of his wife And then when the negative outcome occurs, there's blame shifting and mistreatment. Now, in some ways, that's not surprising because that's what all sin is, right? This is just another example of sin. And this isn't saying that men should not listen to the voice of their wives. No, I mean, the man is responsible. Even if his wife suggests a sinful course of action, he can't say, hey, she made me do it. No, he needs to lead her in righteousness. But men, you'll husbands, you'll be very wise to listen to the voice of your wife because she does have a lot of wisdom. Let's make sure you do that. But... Here, Sarah was not not helping her husband by suggesting this proposal. Were they acting in faith when they sought to bring this about? Eh, In a way, in a twisted way, they did believe that God would provide a son. But What was the problem? They were willing to violate God's design in order to obtain God's promise. Nevertheless, as we noted, God does not rebuke them. God doesn't rebuke Abram or Sarai here, or at least it's not reported. And that's similar to what God does at other parts in Abram's life. Do You remember, we didn't talk about specifically in a class, but when Abram goes down to Egypt and he's afraid that the Egyptians will kill him over Sarai, he asks Sarai to lie. He does the same thing later on with King Abimelech. Twice, he says, tell him you're my sister, not my wife. And twice, she's taken as wife for another man. Abram and Sarai did wrong in that. Yet God didn't rebuke them then. In fact, God protected Sarai from any sexual violation and God blessed Abraham through it. Why? Why does not God call out sin? Why does not say, Abram, let's talk. Uh, you need a little bit of chastening. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he do that here? We don't know. It, the answer seems to be, has to be, God was simply being gracious. God was simply being patient. I think they knew. I think they knew what they were doing was not consistent with what, with what God called people to do. Then we have to recognize also they're at a very early time. There's not there's not scriptures like we have today. They're not around a whole bunch of godly people to teach them. They were some of the some of the earliest people, earliest followers of Yahweh. And so we have to cut them a little bit of slack. And certainly, it seems that God was doing that. God was being very gracious and patient with them. Doesn't mean that God didn't care about their sin, but He was committed to blessing them. They had genuine faith, imperfect faith, but growing faith, and God was patient with their weaknesses. And He had, he had made a covenant with them, a covenant with Abram. And this very patient response from God. Doesn't this disprove the idea that the God of the Old Testament is just a cranky, fire and brimstone monster? That's not what we see here. Look how gentle, faithful, patient God is with Sarai, with Abram, and even Hagar. And aren't you glad that God is that way? Because he's similarly gracious and patient with you. And with your sin. Even you who are spiritual descendants of Abraham. May God's kindness bring us to repentance. May it cause us to follow him more closely. Now, Abram's error here with Hagar It did not derail God's sovereign plan. God is still going to bring about a son of promise. God will bless Ishmael for Abram's sake but Ishmael would not be that son of promise. That son of promise was still to come. And it would be from both Abram's body and Sarai's body. But let's note Hagar for a moment. How should Hagar's interaction with God bring us further comfort and encouragement? Well, Hagar learned that God is both a God who hears and sees the affliction of those to whom he has chosen to show favor. God hears and sees those, the affliction of those to whom he's chosen to show favor. Now, I, I phrase that somewhat carefully because we might ask, was Hagar a true follower or believer in Yahweh? We don't know. The text isn't very explicit about what she believed. Perhaps she was. Nevertheless, whatever she believed and ultimately worshiped, God chooses to show favor to her. Just as God chooses to show favor to us all in a very overwhelming and complete way to those of us who are in Christ. Truly, God is aware of all affliction, sinful oppression and hardship that occurs in the world, but he's not obligated to intervene for anyone except for those to whom he has chosen to show love. Elihu in Job 35, verses 9 to 13, he points out, you know what? There are people who cry out because of oppression, but they don't cry out to Yahweh. And they don't cry out to him in truth. He's not obligated to intervene. You know what? That's true. Nevertheless, for those that God has chosen, God, the ones that God has set his love on, for them, he always sees and always reacts to their affliction. God sees. God hears. He knows. I mean, think about it for yourselves. God has shown you favor. He knows your afflictions. He knows your hardships. He knows your oppressions. He knows your trials. He knows your temptations. And more than that, the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ intercedes for you as a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to live with weaknesses. And he helps you during suffering and temptation. We don't have time to read the references, but Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, they make this quite clear. So, brothers and sisters, you want to be encouraged. You have a God who sees and hears you. His ear is attentive to your cries. You can say, Ishmael, God hears. He is so compassionate and patient and gentle. He cares about you. And he delivers us from sin and from discouragement, when we call upon him in faith, we look to him in faith. Now, I know some of you, probably all of you, are going through difficult circumstances in your life, one way or another. You're all continuing to battle against sin, fighting against the flesh, trying to overcome discouragement. What God does with Hagar is an encouragement to you. Don't despair. God sees. And he continues to deal gently and lovingly with you as a father. Keep trusting in him. His deliverance will come and you will see the blessing if you persevere. Remember that God truly loves you if you're his child. And he loves you with a greater love than anyone in the world can. It is a faithful, it is a covenant love. And we see that love on display here in Genesis 16. Not just to Hagar, but to Abram, to Sarai. And of course, if we've been shown that kind of love and gentleness from God, then we want to show it to others. Now, one last question. What does it mean to do something on your own strength? We use this phrase, I think, a lot as American Christians. Oh, I don't want to do it on my own strength. Or I think he's doing it on his own strength. What does that really mean? Well, just to say briefly, it doesn't mean taking action. No, the Bible calls you to take action. If you have faith, you will take action. I mean, Abram and Sarah had to do this. It's not like God was going to provide them a child just falling from the sky like a stork. No, they had to continue to have marital relations. They had to act in faith. But what does it mean to do something on your own strength? It's when you seek to violate what God has called you to or you ignore what God has called you to in order to obtain God's promise. And this was the error that Sarai and Abram made. They did believe that God would provide them a child, but they thought they had to go outside of what God ordained. They had to go outside God's expressed will to obtain it. And this we can do. We can look to do things in our own strength. God commands us to pray, but we say, no, I just got to work hard. I'm not going to pray. I don't have time to pray. That's doing it on your own strength. Or... God says that He'll provide. He'll provide for all your needs, including a spouse, if God has ordained for you to be married. He said, "I got to obtain what God's provided. So if I have to date unbelievers, so be it. I got to obtain God's promise. Or I really need a job. God says He'll provide a job. So if I have to fudge some information on my job application, I'll do that. If we do that, that's that's doing it on your own strength. And God's still going to provide, but he wants you to trust him. So if you do that, you're going to afflict yourself. You'll afflict yourself with the consequences of sin, and God might have to chasten you as a good father. Yes, God is patient with you, but he loves you so much that he'll let you feel the consequences of your sin. And he may even discipline you. So we don't want to act on our own strength. We do want to act in faith. But doing so means that we actually obey what God has said. We say, I don't have to sin to obtain God's promise. It may mean I have to suffer. It may mean I have to wait. It may mean I have to give up certain desires. But I know that God will provide in his wisdom, his way, at the right time. We can learn even from the failure of Abram and Sarai. That God doesn't need your sin to give you his promises. Now, that's all the time we have for today. If you have questions about what you've heard or about these passages, make sure you email me. Next week, we're going to see the fruition of Abram and Sarai's faith. We're going to see the child of promise come, Isaac, in Genesis 17. Or, yeah, Genesis 17 the following. So I look forward to talking about that with you. Let's close in prayer. But well, we thank you for your love, God. We thank you for your tender compassion toward those who you've just chosen to show love to. We didn't deserve it. We didn't, in a sense, we didn't even ask for it because we didn't, we weren't looking for you. But then you changed us. You opened our eyes and you regenerated our hearts and you've shown such great love to us. And you still do, God, not just what you've done in the past, but continually you're you're providing in the present. You hear, God, you see. So listen to the, The cries of your people who hurt in different ways and who have difficult circumstances, you know, God, these things come from you. They are ordained by you, but not so that we will sin, but so that we will exercise faith and obtain the blessing. So, God, I pray that that would be accomplished in your people by your spirit today. I pray, God, that the rest of the service would encourage them and continue to instruct them. In Jesus name. Amen. All right, thank you all. I will see you next week.